Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's hordes in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march round the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forwards, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carried the seven trumpets, went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, where the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched round the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched round the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies which we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all 
who belonged to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and brought them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. This is God's word. Good evening. Uh, Let me add my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers on the staff here. Uh, Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, pray as we look at your word tonight that you would give us minds to uh, think, to understand, that we would know what you're saying, and also hearts that are willing to accept your truth. Amen. Now, uh, I don't think we ever like hearing passages like that, especially not these days in our culture and especially not today. Uh, Luke prayed, I don't know if you've yet heard the news filtering through from Orlando, where um, a religiously motivated man walked into a gay nightclub and slaughtered, well, over 50 people have already died. And here we have a passage in church about religious slaughter. But actually what we're reading here is precisely the message that at some point those grieving relatives most desperately need. Because uh, what we read here in uh, the book of Joshua, in Joshua 5 to 6, is not a mandate for religious violence, but the promise of divine justice. This is not and cannot be read as a mandate for Christians to be violent. What it is, is the promise of divine justice. Uh, We're not studying this because it gives a model for us to follow. It really can't. It's a one-off event. Uh, The Bible's very clear. We're studying it because it teaches important things for us. Uh, Things are actually critical, truths that are critical even in our 21st century culture, perhaps especially in our culture, because they're things that we ignore and misunderstand. But what we see at the heart of this passage is the good news of a God who judges wickedness. The good news of a God who judges wickedness. Uh, The points will appear up on the screen. Um, We're going to work through the passage looking at God's agenda and human plans, uh, God's power and human weakness, and finally God's judgment and God's mercy. Now as the leader of of God's army, uh, Joshua goes on a little scouting mission and learns a massive lesson right at the start. And what he learns here is that um, what's going on is not to do with human politics but to do with divine judgment let's pick up the story at verse 13 of chapter 15 now when Joshua was near Jericho he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand Joshua went up to him and asked are you for us or for our enemies neither he replied but as commander of the army of the Lord I've now come Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. The place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is utterly crucial, but Joshua has simply not got it. And so it's probably worth us reminding ourselves as well. Joshua seems to think the issue is it's Israel 
we're the good guys against Canaan, they're the bad guys. And the good thing is we've got God on our side. And he could hardly be more wrong. God is not on anyone's side. The answer of the angel Lord, neither. I'm not on your side, Joshua. I'm not on their side. God is not there to, to bless Joshua's military plans with success. We can't baptize our agenda, our military ideas, our political candidate. We cannot baptize them. We cannot claim that they are God's candidate, God's war. The question is whether we are willing to step into and come alongside God in his purposes, not whether he will support us in ours. No matter how just we think the cause is, as Christians here tonight, we should never, ever use the phrase, God is on our side. That is an arrogance that should never come out of the lips of a Christian. God is on God's side, and we should try to be on his side. We should be on God's side. God is not on ours. The first, the most fundamental thing to get our heads around when we, uh, we come to these passages about the invasion of Canaan in the book of Joshua. The children of Israel have left Egypt and they're going into the promised land. And as they embark on this military campaign to destroy the people, we need to get our heads around. It is not an Israelite campaign. It is a divine judgment. It's not an Israelite military campaign or political campaign. It is divine judgment. Israel are are the axe in the hands of God. They're the instrument of his judgment. Uh, Turn with me um, to page 188, Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 to 6. This is a few years beforehand, Moses bringing God's word to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 9 on page 188, uh, verses 4 to 6. And he talks about uh, how they will destroy the Canaanite people. And verse 4, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess because you are a stiff-necked people. He could scarcely be more blunt and clear. See, when you turn back to the start of the Bible, he alluded to it there, the promises sworn to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Way back in Genesis 15, verse 16, God had promised to Abraham, you will inherit the promised land, the land of Canaan, because the people there are unspeakably wicked and they're going to be wiped out. But not yet. God is patient. God is forgiving. And so God says, I will wait another 600 years before their sins are so grievous that they they should be wiped out. For 600 years, God is patient with them, giving them opportunity to repent, to change their ways. In Numbers 14, verses 45 to 46, uh, the first time the Israelites get near the promised land and, and they don't trust God. And then they decide, well, God has told us it's our land, so let's invade it. And God has told them, don't. But they charge in. They're God's people. So surely God will help them. No, God has said no. God's not there just to bless whatever uh, military campaign they want to go on. And so they're defeated and driven back. 
God is not going to just let them do what they want. They are simply the instrument of his divine judgment. In Deuteronomy 18, 9-12, we find out what it is that's so wicked about the Canaanites. Their culture was centered around witchcraft and the slaughter of babies as part of their normal religious services. And so Leviticus 18, 24-28 also talks about their depraved sexual behavior. And God says in a graphic image, he says the land is going to vomit them out. It is so disgusted by their behavior. The problem is, I don't think we believe that. There's a very interesting comment by um, a classics don at Oxford, Dr. Josephine Quinn. She says this, we like to think that we're quite close to the ancient world, that they were really just like us. The truth is, I'm afraid, they really weren't. It's not like in the movies where all the ancient tribes are clean-shaven and really into environmental concerns and and very sophisticated and have just the same mores as us modern Westerners. Uh, In 2014, um, the Biblical Archaeological Review confirms what the Canaanites are accused of. A temple site from a little further away, but at the same time in Carthage, was unearthed. And they found on the side of the temple 200,000 urns containing the ashes of cremated babies and the skeletons. Now, these were not, uh, it's not just cremation of infants who died naturally, because they were all exactly the same age within a month. No, the weak and vulnerable in that culture, those in most need of protection and nurture, were slaughtered to make the crops grow. They were slaughtered, just as that's how you worshipped. Come to church, sing a few songs, pray, and then toss your baby into the fire. We just don't believe it because it's so far from us. But it's the truth. Now, we're a tolerant culture. Indeed, in one sense, tolerance is probably the highest ethic of our culture. But just imagine that uh, up there on Piccadilly at the, uh, the old In-N-Out Club is reopening. Um, there's a new religious group. It's not one of those horrible exclusive religions like Islam or Christianity with its, this is the only way. No, this is, a, this is a, an ancient religion. This is a, a more pagan, eastern religion. And they teach all people have their own way. And we should all tolerate each other's way of approaching God. What a wonderful idea. They, you know, The local government is tripping over itself to offer them grants to get them off the ground. It would be great to encourage this sort of exclusive, tolerant belief system in a culture that's terrified of of extremism. And so they have a big civic opening, you know, the the new mayor, Sadiq's there, um, and everybody's there, and they they launch their, their first open service, and the leader says, I'm here to tell you that all the different religions of the world are valid. We all have different ways to think about how to approach God and we need to tolerate each other, whatever we do. And everybody applauds. And then uh, he says, well, well, let's start the first service. And so they have the first few songs and then uh, a few notices. Uh, and then they, they say, it's time for the children to go out for their classes. So over 12s, down to the basement rooms with the TVs. Uh, and then uh, various DBS checked children's groups and other rooms. Uh, and then toddlers over here in a soundproof room at the back. And then, uh, and then if you're creche aged, there's uh, either the staffed creche through those doors. Or you can come to the front and throw your baby into the fire to ensure that your business goes well and your relationships are healthy this year. all ways are valid that's the most important thing to be tolerant isn't it now I don't think 
we would wait 600 years before clamping down on that. And we assume, oh, God is so brutal in the Old Testament, so impatient, so capricious. And yet he waited 600 years before he brought judgment on these wicked people. He warns, he waits patiently, but eventually he judges. He rightly judges wickedness. Now, I need to be very clear, this is not God preferring one ethnic group over another. God saying, yeah, my people, um, they can do what they like, but I don't like people from other religions. And so if you're here and you think that this is uh, uh, Christians are somehow get away with whatever they like and God um, smashes other people, absolutely not. Look at chapter 6, verse 18, in the, back in the Joshua passage. Joshua 6 and verse 18. God commands them, keep away from the devoted things so you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. If the Israelites behave in a wicked way, they too will face God's judgment. And exactly the same thing happens. 800 years later, God's people turn away from God. And as always happens, a rejection of the the truth about God leads to social ills and in particular the oppression of the the most vulnerable. Uh, That's children and in those cultures, women and foreigners. They suffer. And after 800 years, God sends in the brutal Babylonians as his instrument of judgment against Israel. No favourites with this God. He is a good and a holy God and therefore where there is wickedness, he will judge and destroy it. He will not sit by and do nothing. Okay, secondly, uh, we see God's power and human uh, human weakness. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. When you hear them make a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout, and the wall of the city will collapse. The army will go up, everyone straight in. And that is exactly what happens. Uh, flick ahead to verse 14. Um, so on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. And they did this for six days. These verses are making actually a point very similar to the first one. This makes no sense from a human point of view. And that is the point. God wants both the Israelites and the Canaanites to be absolutely clear that this is not an Israelite military victory. This is God acting in judgment. So for six days, I mean, can you imagine the scene? Six days, the army tramps around in eerie silence, just the sound of the tramping boots and the blasting trumpets. Six days, round and round they go. And what's happening in those six days? Well, if you're an Israelite soldier, as you march around, you see... Sheesh, there are no weak spots on this city. There are no low points on the wall. And we've been going around for six days and none of them have been foolish enough to try and come out and engage us on open ground. If you're the defenders on top of your massive walls, you look down and what do you see? (laughs) They've got swords and spears. They've got no siege weapons. They don't even have ladders. This is a joke. They have no chance. There is no earthly way they can win this. 
You know, it's not the case that uh, it's a cunning plan involving uh, the resonant frequency of their shouts and the trumpets which will affect the stone of the wall or anything like that. It's, the whole point is it is ludicrous from a human point of view. And when the walls finally fall, those inside and those outside will all be absolutely clear that this is of God and not of man. This is always God's way. It is always God's way that he brings glory to himself by working through weak humans rather than strong ones. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, famous verses. Paul says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, in the 17, early 1700s, um, there, was a, there was a missionary to the North American Indians up near New York, back when it was all just fields and really was, um, David Brainerd. But he wasn't, uh, he wasn't your all-singing-all-dancing, rough-tough-out-in-the-wilderness missionary. He had tuberculosis, which is a bit of a bad deal back then, uh, and died at the age of 29 after three years on the mission field. Those three years, his diary records 22 times he wished he was dead because he had such painful episodes of depression. Worse still, uh, when he was uh, finally invalided off the mission field with his tuberculosis, he was taken into the house of Jonathan Edwards, the, the great American theologian. And uh, he, as he died, he was nursed by Edwards' daughter, Jerusha. And his final act, David Brainerd, was to infect Jerusha so that she died too. A miserably weak failure of a life. But... But God works in power through the weakness of humans. And other than, uh, so um, Jonathan Edwards wrote up David Brainerd's diary and published it. It's never been out of print since, never been out of print since the mid-1700s. And other than the Bible, no other book has inspired more people in the Western world to go and give their lives to be missionaries, to take the message of Jesus Christ out to other, other nations. No other book than the diary of this weak failure you've got to say but that's the way God works he shows it's his power by using things that make no sense to humans and I think this can be hard for us because uh, the truth is we're a well-resourced church sorry Mike Uh, we do still need to give uh, but we are we are you look around Um, we've got gifted people financially immensely generous people and that's why it's good, actually, that the elders uh, stretch us with a budget that sometimes seems beyond us. As long as sometimes means always. Uh, it's good. <laughs> uh, that's why it's great that the elders encourage us to do things as a church that we just don't think are possible. And the first time we planted a church, we didn't have enough people going and we didn't have enough people staying. It was How can this ever work? It's good to be reminded that the real strength of Christianity is with God, not with us. You know, it'd be a terrible shame uh, if you get to 40 and look back on, God willing, the first half of your life and realise everything in my Christian life could be explained by human means, human resources, human ingenuity. True discipleship, true following of Jesus is radical and risk-taking because true discipleship follows the mighty God of the Bible and takes him at his word. And God can take our David Brainerd efforts and do mighty glorious things in spite of us. We see God's power and human weakness, and then finally we come to God's judgment and God's mercy. And the verses which, if we're honest, most of us wish weren't in the Bible. Let's just look at 15 to 21. 
On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring them about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded and the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, When the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. Everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now we cannot imagine the carnage that this describes. There is just no getting around the awfulness of those verses. Again, though, it is really important to see what they are and what they're not. This is not God endorsing an Israelite genocide. You see that from verses 17 to 19. There's no looting. They're not going to get rich. They're not, they don't get to inhabit the great city afterwards. No, this is God's judgment. And uh, we're told at the end, verse 26, at that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. Jericho's done. Because it's under God's judgment. Now, even allowing for that, we struggle to reconcile this with, hang on, uh, I guess there'll be people here who who wouldn't call yourselves Christians. I thought when you talked to me about God stuff that you said Jesus said something about loving your enemies. I don't remember any of this stuff being what you told me Christianity is about. So is the God of the Old Testament some sort of primitive savage who grows up and matures into Jesus? Not at all. Jesus says that he perfectly reveals the God of the Old Testament. And although God, through Jesus, calls on us to love our enemies, he also warns that just as with the Canaanites, the clock is ticking on God's patience. And there will be a day of judgment for all God's enemies. For all those who do wicked things. So Paul, as he speaks to the Athenians in in Acts 17, says, uh, God has appointed his judge, his day of judgment, and he's proven it by raising the man who will judge to life. That is Jesus Christ. He will be the judge. Now the problem is, I think that viscerally, emotionally, I just can't imagine anything being so bad as to merit this. Can you? I hesitate to repeat this in church, but let me just tell you one thing I read this last week that I think begins to to help me see what could be so wicked. I read an article um, last week about Boko Haram. Literally, the name means destroy the books, destroy Western education. They're the um, Islamist group fighting for supremacy in Nigeria at the moment. Um, They made the news... uh, a year or so back, because they were the ones who um, kidnapped the Chibok schoolgirls, which sadly is a pretty common occurrence. Uh, Groups of Christian schoolgirls get kidnapped quite regularly in Nigeria. They're certainly not the first, and alas, I don't think they'll be the last. But the article was talking about um, uh, the Nigerian army is 
it's finally really pushing back against Boko Haram. And it was talking about what the weird thing of uh, the first few times that they invaded um, Boko Haram areas and, and captured a camp, that they were slightly confused by what they found there, but they now find it's just regular. They were expecting stockpiles of arms and propaganda materials and that thing. But in every camp they go to, they also find a massive stockpile of Viagra. What? Why, why would Boko Haram soldiers need stockpiles of Viagra? Those who escape tell you why. Because they like to rape and rape and rape and rape and rape. And they want to be able to keep going for hour after hour after hour after girl after girl after girl. So they stockpile Viagra. Now let me ask you. Do you want to go to the Bible and rip out the pages that talk about God's judgment? Do you really, would you really prefer a God who loves those poor, traumatized, abused girls so very, very little that he just shrugs his shoulders? That he's so tolerant and loving that he can't muster any anger for what has been done to them? can't bring himself to judge those wicked, wicked men. See, the families of those girls, they don't struggle with passages like this. Those girls in the camp, they don't struggle with passages like this. They cling to the promise that there is a God in heaven that he sees and one day he will judge. And let me tentatively say to us, if you have any love in your heart for people, then you too should rejoice in a God who judges. And so is it not possible, is it not possible that the reason that God commanded the destruction of Jericho, that awful extermination, is because the Canaanites were every bit as wicked as those Boko Haram militants? I don't know exactly what was happening in Canaan other than the child sacrifice, but I do know I trust this God to make those calls. I trust him. I trust him because the God who instructs this annihilation is the God who became the man Jesus and allowed people to reject, to slap him in the face, to spit on his face, to nail him to a cross, and all the while he was saving them and praying, Father, forgive them, even as they killed him. This God waited patiently for centuries and who knows what warnings he sent them. But eventually he decided enough was enough and he was good to do so. But the uncomfortable thing for you and for me is not that this is a historically accurate record of what happened in the past. The really actually uncomfortable thing is that this is a picture of what God will do in the future. Jericho is not the final judgment but it is a picture of God's final judgment. In the final judgment, each and every Canaanite who died in Jericho will face perfect justice. Their lives will be uh, weighed. They won't just be swept away, each the same as the one next to them. God will deal perfect justice to every human individual. All will stand and give an account before God, but that includes me and you. Have I loved God, my creator, with my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength? Have I loved and served other people who are made in God's image? Or have I put myself at the centre of my thoughts 
and my concerns. Oh, I doubt any of us have behaved anything like with this sort of wickedness we've been talking about tonight. Uh, The truth is we've had such blessed cultural uh, encampment that we've been protected from uh, the things that drive people to do wickedness. But the truth is, I know in my heart there is a wicked selfishness. And I've yet to meet a, a human who would be honest who wouldn't say that their heart revolved around them too. But... But as well as God's judgment, we read here of God's mercy. Three times we read about the dreadful, destructive judgment of Jericho. And each time it's, it's followed by a comment about Rahab. Now why on earth is that? Uh, look with me at verse 17 firstly. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared. 21 to 22. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who'd spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. 24. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. Why is it that every time that the destruction of Jericho is spoken of, immediately it's followed by, but not Rahab? I don't think it's that Joshua's worried they're going to forget. And so he has to keep saying, but don't kill Rahab. I don't think that's what's going on. It's something much more profound and wonderful. And the point is this, that the God who is so holy and just that he brings this dreadful judgment is also a God who is so kind and merciful that he will forgive even the worst of sinners if they turn back. Rahab and her family are not different from the culture around them. The only difference is that they cry to the Lord for mercy rather than keep fighting against him. And so when she recognizes her sin and turns to God, she's saved. And that same mercy that saved Rahab and her family is available to you and me tonight. Any of us here can turn to this God and no matter what we've done, find our sins forgiven. Which seems like a slightly odd, hang on a second, you spend 20 minutes telling us that God is a God of perfect justice and judgment and then suddenly, oh, but if you turn back to him, ta-da, sin's forgiven. Uh, How does that work? Is God schizophrenic? Is he capricious? No, he's perfectly consistent and he must and will judge every sin that has been committed from the dawn of time to its end. Sin is always punished. But centuries after, Rahab and her family were led trembling out of the ruins of Jericho. Rahab's great, 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 great grandson would be led staggering out of the gates of Jerusalem and nailed to a cross. And that great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, was God in human flesh and he was dying on the cross to absorb the wrath, the punishment, the justice of God that I deserve for my sins. And if we put our trust in him, then our sins have been paid. And like Rahab, any of us can be saved. Now I think that uh, when you think about it carefully and understand it properly, this passage, as hard as it is, as culturally far from us as it is, actually contains good news. It reveals a God who judges evil. It's good news for families in Syria and the Middle East. It's good news for those families of the men slaughtered in that gay nightclub this morning. 
It's good news for those girls still trapped in Boko Haram camps, enduring a daily nightmare you and I cannot imagine. It's good news for them that one day their abusers, their killers, will face the anger, the wrath, the judgment of God. It's good news for those here or those known to us here who suffered abuse as children, who can't open old wounds and so will never see justice in this life because just can't face bringing it all up and so live with silent scars. But God knows, and it is good news for people like that, that one day there will be a judgment. It's good news for those finding it desperately hard to forgive, who've been hurt, wronged terribly and are poisoning themselves, drinking down old grievances day after day. Knowing that God will bring awful justice one day makes it just that bit easier for me to let go of my desire to get vengeance now. It's good news as we look out in a world that seems to get uh, a little bit more chaotic and scary every passing year. A world of random terror attacks in nightclubs, of rioting in, uh, inside football stadiums where there are police everywhere, of a world where rich moguls can suck hundreds of millions out of a company and leave people's pensions dry. Human history looks like, feels like it's spinning out of control in a world of random forces, but it's not. It is heading to a day of perfect justice. And that is good news. It is heading to the day when Jesus, the man who suffered without ever taking revenge, will bring justice and will rule with peace forever. Joshua 5-6 to is not a mandate for religious violence. It cannot be used for that. It is the promise of God's divine justice. And God's judgment, his justice, is actually part of the good news of Christianity. Our culture is is the one that is slightly warped, if I may say so, with its incoherent creed of tolerance above all else. Something should not be tolerated. We should be slower to judge God and his ways by the standards of our culture. See, the life of Jesus Christ shows that Actually, here is the man who has the right to lay down the law. Here is the man who seems to live the life that gives authority to him to say what's right and what is wrong. And he has the right to judge us, not the other way around. And as we recognize that, uh, we should respond to his judgment by praying for, well, a more godly perspective on sin. We learn from uh, Joshua 5 to 6 how appalling my selfishness, my greed, my casual indifference to the needs of others, my desire to use God's gift of sex purely for my gratification. We learn how serious the sins that we justify and play with and indulge are. Pray that we would learn to love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. We should pray too for God's justice to come. We should pray more, your kingdom come. We should pray with and for the suffering and abused in our world. For God's day of justice as they wait. But we finish by looking at the cross. And as the cross is the place we finish tonight, it's also the place we should always start when we have questions about God's character. When I don't understand why he says this or why he does that or approves of this, Start at the cross because God never acts out of character. And at the cross we see the good news of God's judgment and the even better news of God's mercy. The promise that any of us, no matter what we've done, 
can be completely forgiven, can receive eternal life and be adopted into God's loving family because Jesus took our Jericho, our judgment that I deserve on the cross. Let's pray. Our Father God, these are hard words for us to understand. These are words that are wildly out of step with our culture. And yet, dear Lord, we know deep down that right judgment is a good thing. And so we pray that you would help us to be people who love justice because we love people. We pray that as Christians we would be people who do not seek our rights now, but trust your day of judgment later. We pray that we would never be tempted to act in violence, but would always give over justice to you, confident that you who brought judgment on Jericho will one day bring justice for the universe. And our Father, we pray tonight, we pray for those who are suffering brutal, wicked, unimaginable injustice in this world, for those who, who've had loved ones slaughtered, raped, kidnapped. Father, we cannot imagine. And we pray, Father, that you would give them the comfort of knowing that you, their God, are a God who is not immune to suffering, but has suffered himself on the cross. And that you, the God who has suffered, are the God who will one day judge and bring all things right. Amen.